What's up and welcome back to the TCP Podcast. This is Tyler Clark with TC Performance and I appreciate you guys for tuning back in. As usual, when we get out the way, please go leave that five-star rating. Go leave that review. Um, if you're listening to this or watching this on YouTube, please subscribe, please like, please comment. All this stuff goes super long way. But with that out of the way, um, I wanted to take episode six as a good opportunity to kind of capitalize on recent episodes being episode three with Coleman Ayers and episode five with Tyler LeClaire. And I'm sure that you guys took a lot away from the episodes from the guys themselves. But specifically, I was asking them basically everything to do with their training philosophies. And their training philosophies are unique in this field because a lot of what skill trainers and coaches are doing as of right now is very, very traditional. It's very dated in my opinion. So what I wanted to do is take this episode as an opportunity to basically take a deep dive into everything they were talking about and clarify some things, hopefully, if you guys had any questions about them. Now, the format of this episode is going to be me basically breaking down a lot of the concepts, a lot of the things, a lot of the words that they mentioned in their episodes. And at the root of that all is the science and literature behind motor learning and skill acquisition. Now, those two terms specifically are basically interchangeable. Motor learning is internalizing new information that allows complete mastery and control or self-organization. And what that means really is just that the brain learns from outcomes. On a very basic level, if we touch a hot stove, we learn to not do that again. It's the same thing as if you're playing one-on-one with a longer defender and on your regular jump shot, you get blocked and now you have to self-organize and learn from that outcome in order to adjust your shot accordingly to get it off. So with motor learning comes a spectrum of complexity. So what that basically means is the complexity in the spectrum is things like context, uh, emotions, sensory system, and dynamic interactions. And a great example of this is, say you're at the free throw line, huge game, it's the conference championship, um, you get an and one, you're at the free, free throw line with the game tied up. If you hit this, you win. So the spectrum of complexity would be taking things into account like the dynamic interactions. So how are you interacting with the opponent, with your teammates, with your coaches, um, the sensory system? Are you being overwhelmed with the atmosphere, with things like that? Um, are your emotion? Are you super anxious? What is the context? So the context, as I already mentioned, is big game. That's kind of the spectrum of complexity, and that's motor learning. Now, understanding what motor learning is, and even from a general sense, you don't need to be an expert. I'm not an expert, but you need to have a general understanding of motor learning. And why is that so important? Because if we understand motor learning, we can better understand how to improve our players. So to summarize what motor learning really is, it's basically self-organization. Our brain learns from previous outcomes. So failing in that sense is very, very positive. If we fail, our brain takes that into account. We take that outcome into account, and then we can properly adjust and adapt to then not fail the same way that we just did. We may fail, in a different way a couple other times, but based on those other failures, we're going to then succeed. So having that base level of motor learning is very, very important. But with that being said, let's get into some of the approaches talking about training. So there's the games-based approach and constraints-led approach, which have been mentioned in previous episodes. The games-based approach is basically just making training look as similar to the actual game as possible. So you're gonna include things like pressure and anxiety, uh, moving or live defenders, spacing limitations, etc. Now, the constraints-led approach is 
basically just a tool used to guide a player towards a specific solution. So we avoid telling them what to do and allow the applied constraints to guide players to the solution. And a lot of times you'll see constraints used within the games-based approach. So those two work hand in hand very well together. But continuing off of that, if you're going to use the constraints-led approach, it's important to take a couple of things into account. So implicit versus explicit learning is very, very important when using the constraints-led approach. And I've talked about implicit learning, Tyler LeClaire talked about it in episode five, but really implicit learning is learning on your own without being consciously aware of what you're learning. Whereas explicit is telling a player what, how, when, and why to do this. Um, so it's important to understand that if you're going to use a constraints that approach, you don't want to explicitly tell your players what to do. I, like I mentioned, a constraints that approach is a tool to guide your player towards a specific situation. So naturally, we're going to lead our players to implicitly learn a skill. We're not going to explicitly tell them exactly what, how, when, and why to do something. So it's important to acknowledge those two different types of learning, especially whenever using a games-based and constraints-led approach. But talking about learning, it's super important to understand and identify the goals within a training session. This is probably the biggest key regarding training in general. So are, are we, is the goal learning or is the goal performance? There are times it's for performance, yes, but most times if a player is seeking your help, it's to improve upon their existing skills, meaning the goal is going to be learning. So why is that important? Because when we identify learning as the goal, it's now important to understand you'll have to sacrifice short-term performance for long-term learning. I'm going to say that again. If the goal is to learn, then you'll need to sacrifice short-term performance for long-term learning. The goal isn't necessarily to look good in a training session. If we look great in training, then what is there to improve on? But Tyler, that, that doesn't make any sense at all. It's a trainer's job to help them get better, right? Yes. And that's exactly what we're doing when we make this sacrifice. I mentioned what motor learning and skill acquisition was at the beginning, and it all roots from that. The idea of motor learning centers around making mistakes and adjusting based on those mistakes. So in this case, and pretty much any case, learning is improving. But to move forward, the next two big vocab words are blocked practice versus random practice. So blocked practice is basically repping out the same skill over and over. Never leave your comfort zone. You're able to use that last rep, which was the same as every other rep as a reference. Whereas random practice is practicing the same skill, but with different variables. So let's say, for example, five spot shooting. Um, I hope everybody is familiar with five spot shooting. Block practice would be just 10 shots in the same spot with the same pass, same landing, same form, etc. Whereas random practice would be five spots, but add a bad pass into it. So every shot is a little different now. There's some variability. Or maybe every single shot you need to add a pump fake and then you shoot and that's the variability. You understand the point that I'm trying to make. Now, the biggest difference between the two is variability which happens to be really the cornerstone of motor learning, as I've mentioned. So why is variability so important? No movement is ever going to be the same, ever. No two movements, no jump shot, no crossover, no pass. Even at a basic human level, the way we breathe is never going to be the same. The inhalation and exhalation will be timed differently. We'll have shallow and deep breaths. We'll hold it for longer sometimes, etc. So my point is, 
if nothing is ever going to happen twice, nothing will ever be the same ever again, why practice the same perfect shot for hundreds of reps? It doesn't make sense to me. Why, why not practice and prepare for multiple results? Um, another really good analogy that references motor learning is the house key analogy. So the only way you open a door is when the key fits perfectly into the lock. However, during the process of doing this, you have to take the key out of your pocket and then through space and then into the keyhole and then through precision grip and rotation of the wrist, do you now unlock the, the door? But this skill wasn't acquired overnight. It happened from accumulating a whole bunch of experience throughout your life, starting from when you were a child, reaching for your mom's cheek or grabbing a toy off of the table, putting blocks into your playpen. Things like this, they're all outcomes that our brain can now use for a reference. So whenever we're thinking about putting a key into the keyhole, it's a very similar motor pattern. And our brain already has the reference so we can then self-organize based on our experiences throughout life which gets me into a huge concept being repetition without repetition. So this is very, very present within the games-based approach in random practice. Repetition without repetition is basically repping out a skill, but every single rep you're solving the same solution in a different way. So let's use a pull-up jumper as our example. So we're, so we're repping out a pull-up jumper, but every single rep will be slightly different. Using a constraint, maybe you can only dribble left and you have a defender on a cone five feet to your right. Everyone knows that you're going left, but how you get there will determine if you score. The dribble will be different, the release, your footwork, your jump, etc. You're getting repetition without repetition. So now we've looked at what motor learning is, what a games-based approach is, constraints-led approach, implicit versus explicit learning, repetition without repetition, variability, etc. Now, how do we apply these tools in our training sessions? So first things first, we need to build a super solid relationship and environment with our players. They need to be comfortable and feel safe enough to make mistakes while in a session with you. Because as I've mentioned, learning will more than likely be the goal. And in order to learn and get better, we need to struggle. So our players need to feel comfortable struggling and making those mistakes around you. Once you've established solid relationships and a good environment with your players in order to allow them to be comfortable and to make mistakes, then we can talk about how to apply a games-based approach and constraints and implicit versus explicit learning, things like that. So the cool thing about most of this stuff is that it all really ties in together. Um, while using the games-based approach with, say, a small-sided game, which a small-sided game is basically just an isolated situation from what might happen or definitely happens in a game. So let's use a floater, for example. A player that you're working with wants to improve their floater. We can use a small-sided game with constraints in order to improve that. So a small side of game that we could use is say there's three players. One is on offense and the other two are on defense. The first defender is going to close out hard, either left or right, making the offense read them and make a decision. The second defender is going to be directly under the basket. So whenever the offense makes a read and they go left or right, they have to attack that help side defender. And the constraint is going to be they can only score off of a floater. So that may, that may sound simple, but every single possession, they're going to have to figure out a new solution to how to get that floater up every single time. So maybe they snake it, they go off at two feet, and they float it just above the defender's hand. The other one, maybe they in and out, they float it, they go off of one foot, and they tap it off the backboard. They My point is they have to figure out a new solution, get the same result every single time. 
So we're getting variability within this small side of game, just using the constraint of you have to float the ball up every single time. So that's just one example of a small side of game and the game space approach using constraints. And the beauty of it is that you guys can use it however you want. Just identify a skill, create a small side of game, add some constraints. That it's it's really that easy. As th the more you do it, the more film you watch, the the more literature you read, you'll you'll understand it and it'll just become easy to kind of come up with these small side of games and constraints to add in order to improve upon your players. But my whole point of talking about this is that look at that small side of game and think about the things that I was mentioning before. The overall goal is learning. That's how we get better as people, as players. And using that small side of game with constraints, we provide our players with the perfect opportunity to learn, to self-organize, to get better in that moment, make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. Now, whenever I was first getting into these philosophies, these approaches and all this stuff, a big question that I had was how do I scale this with my players, with my athletes? And basically what I mean is with block practice, for example, the traditional approach, you can say you had a good session because I made this many shots or I got this many shots up. But with a games-based approach, it's a little different. It's how many decisions did I make or did this player turn the ball over less? Did this player improve upon a skill that we were trying to work on the week prior? Things like that. So Whenever we think about a games-based approach and how to quantify it, how to scale it, it's important to take into account every single player's optimal zone of improvement. And basically, that's how we're going to scale a session utilizing the games-based approach. And now we know that struggle or challenge needs to be present in order to improve. But now the hard part is every single player is going to be different. So the struggle or challenge is going to be subjective per athlete. So how do we find that optimal zone with different athletes? And, you know, a, a lot of literature out there, some, some of it says it should be about 70% of the time they succeed, or some says 85% of the time your players should succeed. But like Tyler LeClaire mentioned in episode five, it might look more like 50% of the time they succeed or 60% of the time. I think it'll be very, very subjective to the athlete. And like I mentioned before, you want to establish relationships with these players. So you'll have a better idea of their optimal zone of improvement based on your relationship with them. So if you know that they struggle with failing a little bit more so than another player, maybe you want them to succeed closer to that 70% of the time or 85% of the time. And then whenever they start to get better and they, you start to build up that player, that's whenever they might want to fail and challenge them to only succeed maybe 60% of the time or 50% of the time. But the important part is that you're providing challenge for these players. An easy kind of scalable way is if they're hitting nine reps out of 10 every single time, that's a telltale sign that whatever you're doing is a little too easy. So you need to challenge them a little bit more. But now let's talk about block practice. And a big question that I had, and I'm, I know a lot of people have, is what about novice athletes? Does block practice have any sort of value for new and novice athletes? And based on what I've mentioned about motor learning, contrary to common belief, block practice probably doesn't make a lot of sense for novice or new athletes, honestly. If the true goal is to learn and acquire new skills, then as we now know, they need variability. So random practice with the games-based approach using constraints would help a lot more in my opinion. Exposing these new and novice athletes to a bunch of different situations and giving them variability and showing them different outcomes for our brain to then use as reference and self-organize, that is the goal. That is how we learn. That is motor learning at its finest. 
So for us to think that block practice might be more beneficial for novice athletes doesn't really make sense with the science at least. And in my opinion, I genuinely just think that random practice is better overall for really anybody. Now, I'm not trying to demonize block practice. I'm not trying to necessarily take a stance against it. It has its time and place. It really just all comes down to the goals that you establish with your players, like I've mentioned earlier. So if the goal is to learn random practice using the games-based approach, using constraints is the better way to go. It is without question the better way to go. But there is a time and place for block practice. Something that block practice is super good at is increasing confidence. So a great opportunity to use block practice is let's say in season. If you just need to see the ball go in the hoop, get your block practicing, get your reps up. That's a perfect opportunity to use block practice. At that point, you're not trying to improve shooting necessarily. You just want to see the ball go in the basket, get some placebo effect and really increase confidence. So that's a great opportunity to use block practice. I also think that it has some value on your low days or your rest days where you just need to get a little bit of movement in. You, you can just set up the gun or have a rebounder and just get reps up, get some very extensive plyos in, just very minimal movement on a rest day so you're not just sitting around on your ass. But besides that, I, I don't think block practice has much of a place anywhere in training. So if you're doing a lot of things on no defense against cones and you're just sitting doing five spot shooting and think that you're improving as a player, I'm sorry to break it to you, but you're not. The reason why random practice transfers and carries over to games so much better than block practice is because of this motor learning aspect. As an organism, you are adapting to your situation. You are self-organizing. You are learning based off of other outcomes. The stimuli is similar to the games. So you you lack that stimulus whenever you use block practice, whenever you're only training against cones or no air and you're just getting shots up. So whenever it comes to a game, your body doesn't react the same way that it does against air because there's literally another human being right there. Your brain reacts differently. Your body literally reacts differently. There are studies showing that our knee mechanics differ based on cognitive demand and reactive stimuli. So my, my point being is if you're not adding any sort of live reaction, and that that doesn't even necessarily have to be live defense. If you're with a trainer or even a friend, you can use audio cues, visual cues. It doesn't really matter what it is. You just need a reactive stimulus. If you have something to react to, there is a higher chance that it'll transfer over to your games. So my takeaway, my point with all that is if you're a coach or a trainer utilizing block practice with your athletes, in my opinion, I think that you're doing your, your players a disservice. Even if it's just you and your player, you can use audio cues, like I just said. You can use visual cues. Use your own body as defense. Make them react off of you. Add some sort of reactive stimulus and cognitive demand to your training sessions if you're trying to improve upon skill. Now, if you're a player and you're like, well, I, I don't, like, how am I supposed to add this reactive stimulus, this cognitive demand? I don't have anybody to play with. One, if you're somebody who says that you never have anybody to work out with, it, I find that super hard to believe. Go ask a teammate, go ask a friend, go ask a family member. Literally, you don't have to have them play one-on-one -on -one with you or put you through this entire crazy training workout. Like literally all you need is somebody else maybe to just give you a visual cue, a finger, one or two, an audio cue, or worst case scenario, record yourself saying go or saying red or yellow or one or two 
and then base cues off of those audio cues, like one equals left, two equals right, red equals stop, green equals go, go equals go. You get my point. You can figure out things to improve your training sessions, even if you don't have anybody with you. So that is kind of my rant and lesson on motor learning and the games-based approach, constraints-led approach, implicit versus explicit learning, all this stuff that I just talked about. Um, I hope that you guys found this valuable. But before I go, there are two people that I want you guys to absolutely go check out. If you're interested in motor learning and skill acquisition, you need to know who these people are. The first one being Nikolai Bernstein. He is probably the most referenced researcher within this field, motor learning and skill acquisition. And he's really the pioneer of the stuff that I was mentioning before. And he is the forefront of all this stuff, really. And then the other guy being Rob Gray. He has his own podcast. He has a book out now, which I'm going to get very, very soon. He has a website with a bunch of linked articles that have incredible information. So you guys, please go check out those two guys, Rob Gray and Nikolai Bernstein. I'm going to link both of them in the show notes. And with that being said, I'm going to sign off. And next week I will be back same time, 7 a.m. Wednesday with a guest. So look forward to that and stay tuned for more.